0: Welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Home Efficiency.
1: Hello, clean tech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community, do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to HomeEfficiency.com. Check out. We're here for another episode of Clean Tech Talk. I'm Zachary Shahan, CEO and Director of Clean Technica. And today we're talking with Jim Chen from Rivian, an exciting uh, guest. First time we've had Rivian on the podcast. Jim, can you give us a little bit more background what you do at, at, sorry, at Rivian right now and your background uh, leading up to this?
2: Sure. So happy to be here, Zach. Thanks very much for inviting us. We're we're super excited about what everything that's happening at Rivian. I've been with the company almost two and a half years, a little over two and a half years now. I'm the my official title is Vice President of Public Policy and Chief Regulatory Counsel. I basically explain it as you know anything, all things government. So whether it's uh, regulations that govern our products and approvals that we need to be able to sell to covering you know, state, federal, and even international government relations, where we site our facilities, how we operate within the bounds of the law and the regulation to ensure that, that our business model is uh, complying with all the different regulations that we need to because, you know, let's face it, automobiles, motor vehicles, energy, connectivity, all the areas we're in are highly, highly regulated. I've been in the electric vehicle space for... A little over a decade now, and I think the biggest chunk of that was when I was in a similar role with Tesla from 2010 to 2016, been with a couple other startups, uh, provided some consulting to others before I landed at Rivian. I'm really super excited about Rivian. I don't think there has been an EV uh, company, and I don't want to say startup because we've been around for a while, but I don't think there has been an EV company that has generated this much excitement and and promise uh, since Tesla. So super excited about that. Prior to that time, I, my career spans close to 30 years in the automotive regulatory, environment, and safety area, and I had represented in a in a prior life uh, some of the more traditional automakers, so understand the industry pretty well.
1: Excellent background. Yeah, I'll just when we're talking, I'll block the Tesla. But when Tesla comes up, I can move to the side and we can see the Tesla in the picture behind. No, you. no, it's okay. it's, it's, no. <laughs> it's it's
2: all good. Listen, listen, and and that. One of the biggest misconceptions is that, oh, Rivian is a, is a Tesla killer. Far, 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 far from it. Uh, not only are we in a different segment, you know, trucks and SUVs, but, you know, we, we view this as, look, electric vehicles comprise less than 2% of the entire fleet. Our competition is not with each other. We applaud Tesla. I'm still personally a fan of Tesla and want to see Tesla continue to grow and succeed. I have a lot of friends who are are still at Tesla. And and the mission needs to be carried by all of us. And our competition is not Tesla. It's not even the other startup EVs. Our competition are the internal combustion engine equipped vehicles that are out there, as we try to flip the entire fleet to more sustainable, all electric, more compelling vehicles.
1: Yeah, we try to make that point repeatedly, you always fall into the issue of comparing like vehicles. So you compare a A new ev to another ev because they're similar but this is the core message that it's it's sort of it's it's electric vehicles versus you know trying to retire fossil fuel age so it's a very good point and appreciate that so we'll jump in so oh just as a quick intro for anyone who didn't catch we are focusing on policy today this is a policy focused discussion so I was actually mentioning to a colleague, you know, we're having Rivian on the pod- podcast, but they don't even want to talk about their vehicles. There's no, <laughs> no discussion of the vehicle. I mean, I'm sure we might touch on it, but the the, the topic is is policy matters. So, in particular, direct sales. So, kind of jump in here, just as a short intro. The big obstacle to sales of electric vehicles in the U.S. many see is being the sales model of of selling cars from stock on dealership lots one thing we've pointed out from time to time is europe has much more of a history and culture of custom ordering and having the vehicle delivered uh, months months later Um, hopefully not years later but the us is very heavily built around going to a dealer getting a car and of course dealers want to quickly move vehicles off the lot they they're commission based they want to get you sign the paperwork get in the car get out and if there's extra you know service revenue expected from that vehicle all the better for the for the managers or owner so you know, about a while back, I think even before you were, or maybe when you were at, Tez, at Tesla, Tesla conclu- concluded that it, it you know had to start out by selling directly. If it tried to sell through dealerships, it would go bankrupt quickly, die, dealers would not push the product well, uh, or would not educate people well. So choose chose to go the direct sales route. You were there. You're also at Rivian. Can you speak a little bit about how this direct sales model also originated at Rivian sort of the, the discussions and kind of anything relevant, anything interesting about that development.
2: Yeah, absolutely happy to. And, and, and I think you see this up very well. And let me start out by saying, this is a problem that is unique to the United States. Uh, you pointed that out and you use the example of Europe where they're used to having custom orders. I would take it even a step further. Only in the United States do we have the issue of manufacturers not being able to sell direct in in many states. Everywhere else in the world, including, by the way, communist China and, and Russia, manufacturers are allowed to receive a license, open up their own stores, and sell directly to consumers in those countries. Only in the land of the free and the home of the brave do we have these laws that restrict manufacturers from freely choosing how to interact with their customers. And that leads, leads into the answer to the question, why are we doing this? This is at the end of the day about providing that seamless experience to our customers from when they're even before they purchase the Rivian considering whether or not they wanna buy electric. Electric vehicles, especially even now, is, is more about education than it is about moving the metal, which is an expression that's used in dealer parlance. You alluded to this earlier, Zach, about how they want to get inventory off their lots. For us, it's not about getting inventory off of lots. It's about educating consumers about the benefits of electric drive, why it's not just better from the environmental aspect, but better from a performance aspect, better from a longevity aspect, better from a durability of maintenance aspects. 70% of uh, the maintenance that's required for internal combustion engine equipped vehicles doesn't exist. For an electric vehicle, your biggest wear items on electric vehicle, literally tires, wipers and washer fluid. So Rivian understood that, that early on that we wanted to have that ability to educate our, our customers or, or consumers who are considering an electric vehicle, be able to talk about the vehicle, um, be able to work them through a seamless, easy sales process where they didn't have to worry about haggling and make it easier for them to get into an electric vehicle. And then once they're in the electric vehicle, be able to support them throughout there. We have over-the-air monitoring for all of our vehicles, with owner permission, by the way, I wanna make that clear. So if an owner doesn't want us to monitor, they can turn that off in the vehicle themselves and that vehicle is blind to us. But, but when, we, when they do allow us to monitor, we can ensure the condition of the vehicle is, is optimal that during charging, the energy is spread out evenly amongst the modules and the cells. That as the vehicle is operating, whether you need, and there's a motor at each one of the wheels for Rivian, whether you need one motor for peak efficiency or whether you need all four motors operating at slightly different rates or speeds or tractions to ensure that you're getting the best traction possible in an adverse weather condition, or if you're off-roading, we can see all that. And if there's a problem, We can let that customer know even before they see symptoms in their vehicles. And if it requires a repair, instead of taking off the day from work, bringing it to a service center, waiting all day long for a technician to do it, we can, if it's a software update, just simply do that over the air. While the vehicle's plugged in at night, connected to home Wi-Fi at 2 a.m., and the customer gets a a refreshed or repaired vehicle the next morning. I also mentioned over-the-air updates for new features. We can do that directly ourselves you don't have to go through a dealer that has to do a reflash or talk to your dealer about an appointment to set up we can do that all seamlessly right up to the point where you know you're ready to trade in your rivian and and go on to the next one and we can share that the other piece of this is really important because we've been able to monitor that vehicle again with owner permission we know exactly how that vehicle's been operated we know the condition of the motor, the battery. So in the used car market, when we take back that Rivian, we can assure that next customer the exact condition of that vehicle. So that constant touch point, again, with, with the permission of the owner, throughout the life cycle of the vehicles, vehicles what we're really after. And let's face it, the business model that the dealers had set up, it's not, it's not that we're against this philosophically the dealer model for what it is works very well for internal combustion engine uh, equipped vehicles in the state of the industry there. So we're looking at a a new car market in the United States of roughly 17 million vehicles a year. So you've got the Fords, GMs, Hondas, Toyotas, Volkswagen, making literally millions of vehicles, shipping them out to dealers, having them sit in dealer lots so folks can purchase them off that lot. And where do the dealers make their money? Not entirely on the sale. But according to an NADA statistic, National Auto Dealers Association, 40, almost 50% of the profitability of dealerships comes from service, the service that doesn't exist in electric vehicles. And that's the oil changes. That's the the belt changes. That's the high temperature coolant, none of which exists on uh, an electric vehicle. So the business models, franchise dealers is simply incompatible with electric vehicles and what we want to do.
1: Yeah, it's actually an interesting thing there, you know, just going beyond the sales process. It's about being in touch with the customer throughout and having a relationship with the customer throughout, which I hadn't thought much about as as it relates to this. But when you buy a product, especially a nice product, an expensive product, you always want to know that you're gonna have an avenue to the to the maker. You know, you you don't really want to have to go through a third party or someone you don't really trust. So it's a really interesting point that you bring up that I hadn't thought a lot about. Is that you can have that constant relationship that starts at that process. So one some some really stri- striking, surprising f- figures we have that sort of highlight also the the, the sales issue is that a typical de- dealership in the U.S. sold about three electric vehicles last year, and in the in New York over 100,000 franchise dealers or sorry over 1,000 franchise dealers sold about 1,500 EVs so 1,000 dealers sold about 1,500 EVs 1. 1.5 each and in five tesla locations tesla sold 9,000 EVs so why do you want to speak a little bit more about what's happening there why we have these very low numbers on average Anything that that we haven't already discussed about about that?
2: Yeah, I think that touches about uh, the disparity about electric vehicles, the incumbent differences or the inherent, sorry, the inherent differences between electric vehicles and internal combustion engine equipped vehicles, gas-powered vehicles. Again, I mentioned earlier that the fact that dealers make 40, almost 50% of their profits on service, service that doesn't exist on an electric vehicle. So if you're a dealer and you know that you're going to get half of your products removing gas-powered vehicles and maybe you could sell one or two EVs but you won't see those again, you know, the profit motives are simply going to be pushing you as a dealership to move those gas-powered vehicles first. And you know you're going to get a lot more inventory and you know there's a lot more uh, familiarity amongst your salespeople and among your service technicians. If you want to, if you're a dealership, you're an established dealership and you want to switch to EVs, I mean, that's a heavy lift. You have to invest literally hundreds of thousands of dollars into training for your personnel, training for your service techs, refitting your service operations, uh, and, and recognizing that that investment may not come back because frankly, that service is not going to reliably be there as it was for your gas powered counterparts. In fact, interesting statistics, uh, GM, in announcing that it was going to more and more all electric, one of the first lines that it was going to convert to all electric is Cadillac line. Uh, and they told Cadillac dealers, hey, listen, we want you to spend a couple hundred thousand to do exactly what I talked about. Upgrade your facilities, train your personnel, get ready for this new EV uh, uh, lineup that's coming. And by the way, if you don't want to do it, you know, uh, we'll buy you out. We'll buy out your franchise uh, for anywhere from half a million to a million dollars. Uh, what's interesting is that I think it's like a quarter to a third of all the Cadillac dealers basically said, fine, we will sell you our business. We will give up our franchise, sell it back to you as opposed to being willing to you know, go in on EVs. So I think that kind of is a great illustrative example of how dealers, franchise dealers that is, seeing this shift just aren't willing to make the investment at this time. Now, I'm not trying to paint them all with a broad brush. Certainly there are dealers out there that would be um, happy to sell EVs. And, and there are some out there that are, are trying to get on board with that. But from what we've seen, the vast majority uh, aren't. And, and it's, it's not because there's some philosophical anti-EV bent. there may be, but it is because of the uh, large investment has to be. And the way the business model has been set up, the traditional business model is all about moving the metal and then bringing that metal back into be service something
1: that doesn't exist with EVs. Yeah, and I've I've arrived at lots where the dealer had the EV in the back corner next to the charging station uncharged. <laughs> it is like well we can't really you can't really take that out right now cuz it's not charged. But yeah, we, we don't need to go further down that road. I think let's jump into the direct sales landscape in the US. This is a fascinating topic. Tesla's been working on this for years when you were at Tesla as well and now Rivian is very focused on this what can, you say, what can you say about the current landscape for direct sales and sort of the state-by-state kind of situation, patchwork, how, how it lays out right now, where direct sales are allowed, where they're not allowed, uh, and the major kind of legal battles that are going on? And just a little more to give you more to run with uh, and how that's been shifting in recent years. Has it changed much in the past two to three years or are there kind of hurdles that just keep, keep remaining?
2: Well, it certainly has shifted, and there certainly are hurdles, and and I think I have one of the more unique perspectives on this because you're right, when I was at Tesla, I was actually involved in leading a lot of those battles in the various states to try to open up states, and back in the day, you know, we certainly were battling with the NADA and their state counterparts, as well as some of the legacy automakers who were siding with the dealers and basically pushing against these these, uh, changes to the law and there was a trend where states were actually starting to shut down. And when I was a Tesla, we went in and, and, and tried to stop that uh, flow and actually reverse it. Uh, fast forward today, and you've got automakers like GM who are committing to be all electric uh, by some future date. I believe it's 2035. I can't remember the specific date.
1: Yes, yeah, it's 2035. <laughs> We've had some people clarify that it's not exactly how it's portrayed as a 2035 full electric it's more like a kind of aspiration or something but i don't know it's you know we're mincing words but basically they they made a big announcement for 2035 and
2: i don't want to put words in their mouth but i know there's the announcement and the the point is that the the traditional industry is shipping you got vw going all in you've got uh volvo starting to go all in I mean, when when Mary Barra and GM announced their dedication to EVs, I mean, that was an encouraging sign. This didn't happen back in the 2012, 2015, 2016 timeframe when these battles were pretty much being fought solely by Tesla. Now we're in a different era and you see EV technology continuing to improve. You see the cost curve coming down. You see more promising companies coming in with exciting offerings and you get states that are realizing, well, wait a minute, we really need to be prepared for this new technology revolution. So in 2017, you had Wyoming flip from being a closed state to an open state to direct sales. Uh, In 2019, you had Utah flip from closed to open. Most recently, you had Colorado in 2020 saying, we're gonna open our arms to this investment by manufacturers like Rivian, like Tesla, like Lucid, to be able to open up stores and and to be regulated. And that's an important distinction, Zach, is that a lot of times the the state dealer associations are saying, well, you know, you're letting these guys come in unregulated. Actually, the opposite is true. We're actually coming in and asking to be licensed uh, directly as a manufacturer, meeting all the requirements and all the standards that apply to any other dealer. So having a physical location, having a minimum number of parking spots, having you know, uh, file cabinets, going through inspections, having signage, uh, making sure our our salespeople are going through background checks. We're happy to do all of that stuff and just to be eligible to be able to invest, put up locations uh, and have a presence in the state. So if anything, this would actually help, uh, uh, you know, assure folks in the state that, you know, we're here, we're legitimate, uh, we wanna do this. But how the landscape has changed, again, it's, it's the industry has changed as a whole. States are starting to recognize that more. That's not to say we don't continue to have our hurdles. Certainly, there are states that uh, of uh, dealers pushing bills, protectionist bills, are, are, are still shutting down. So in 2019, North Carolina uh, passed a law that made it illegal for not only sales by a manufacturer, but service as well. Uh, and that's that's another concern. I know Louisiana right now is, is debating a bill, what, whether to shut down. the the ability for manufacturers to do service in that state. And by the way, this would result in the one Tesla service center in that state being closed and and people being laid off. It's just, uh, the hurdle.
1: One of our writers wrote about it, but before I saw her article about it, she tweeted about it and Elon responded to her and, and, was, and I was like, oh, that's news. And I was like, oh, she's got an article pending about this. that I need to review and edit. But yeah, it's it's it's, it's really unfortunate. I'm, I've I've had lived years in North Carolina. It's very unfortunate to see um, that kind of thing. It's funny though, you mentioned that the states that have had progress, we've done EV driver surveys several times, several different years. And I remember... If, a few years ago or 3 or 4 years ago i remember doing one where we got for the first time we got ev drivers from 49 states responding to the survey the one state that didn't we didn't have anyone from was wyoming so it's funny that wyoming is making progress there uh, already and you and you have problems in places like north carolina texas michigan still where they don't have full Uh, So what do you see as just, you know, I don't know, the three biggest, the three top, top target states that you're trying to flip, basically, you're trying to get, get to join the free market, the, the, the free world?
2: Well, I I will tell you, there are efforts in a number of states, Uh, Georgia just shut down its legislature, and we were unable to move our bill out of even committee in that state. Um, And you might imagine these are states where pickup trucks and SUVs would be quite popular, I would say. And, And the states run all over. And sometimes it's a mystery to me as to why. So right now we're in a battle in Washington state trying to pass a bill. Washington state, which wants to, you know, prides itself on being an environmentally conscious state, right now has laws on the books that prevent manufacturers like Rivian from being able to sell directly into the state. And, and let's be clear. Rivian is not going to be forced into a franchise model. Okay. This is how we've decided it is best for our business to move forward. And if we have to sell into Washington from nearby Idaho or Oregon, which are both open States, we'll do that.
1: Uh, how does Washington, how does Washington have, <laughs> I mean, this is a mind boggling. How does it have this on the books? Like what is, what is going on? How did this happen? And is it, is it just the same story as elsewhere it was developed decades ago to protect consumers from from monopolistic auto maker i mean you know that's the, the well maybe you can just give a little background what's what's the argument for why cars have to be sold through dealers and have you seen any any of those arguments play out to any degree at all in places where where we have direct sales Oh, yeah, so uh,
2: it's it's a it's a very good question, and historically, we go back to the turn of the century when uh, manufacturers were first trying to figure out how to how to distribute all the, the the vehicles that we're building. How Henry Ford could get the Model Ts from the factory to customers, and so they started going to uh, small mom and pop shops and saying, look, we'll give you an exclusive distributorship if you'll sell just our Ford vehicles. So they signed up these small businesses to be their distributors. Now get to the 40s and 50s, you started seeing manufacturers saying, hey, well, wait a minute, we want to get in on this too. And so what they started to do was, and and I'm not pointing to anyone in particular, it was a whole different time. You had manufacturers, large manufacturers opening up company stores across the street from their distributors. So the franchise laws were enacted to level the playing field, to prevent large manufacturers from predatory behavior against the small mom and pop shops. You know, you certainly wouldn't want a family that put up their life savings to put up a building and develop a dealership to be run out of town by a multi-million dollar, um, back then, multi-million dollar manufacturer. Well, fast forward to today, well, those dealers, two, three, four generations have built their own empires. You now have the auto nations of the world uh, and these, these small mom and pop and shops are no longer mom, small mom and pop shops, they're multi, they're huge industries under themselves, and the playing field is a lot more level from the commercial aspect, yet um, what has happened is the dealers have gained more power, not only have they you know, become stalwarts of the community, uh, they contributed to political campaigns, and in many cases they are the legislators themselves, so, for example, our bill in Georgia pretty much was shut down by the uh, uh, a leadership in the Senate that is a dealer, okay, he's also a part-time legislator, but you, you have that type of imbalance of power where now all of a sudden the dealers are shutting things down. Washington is a great case example because Washington used to be a state that allowed a manufacturer who was not competing with franchise dealers of their own line make go ahead and receive a license. In fact, that's how Tesla did get their license in Washington. But around, I want to say around 20 or so, Washington decided, uh, or the dealers said, well, you know, Tesla got to do this, we can't let this happen. So ran a bill in 2012 to basically make it illegal for any manufacturer to be able to receive a license and sell directly. Tesla ended up being grandfathered in, so now it is the only Uh, manufacturer that's allowed to do this. And by the way, this is the most recent story in this chapter of franchise franchisee. So there's a handful of states, I think roughly nine states, where Tesla, because they had established a presence, was allowed to sell, but the door was shut behind them. So you've got states like New York, uh, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, uh, Georgia, Washington, Colorado used to be on that list, but uh, Colorado opened up, as I mentioned earlier, in 2020, which all have basically said, you know, we're not going to let manufacturers do this. Tesla, since you already had a presence and it looks bad, if politicians put people out of jobs and shut down businesses in the state, grandfathered Tesla in there. But times have changed, and and now it's not just Tesla out there. It is, as I mentioned, Rivian, Lucid, Lordstown. There's a a number of promising EV manufacturers that would like to do something similar because again, the business model is more appropriate for EVs uh, to do this directly than it is to go through franchise dealers.
1: Yeah, I remember covering a lot of these things where Tesla sort of woke woke some people up to the threat of it and they started putting these laws on the books before anyone else was around, <laughs> around to fight it and they would just grandfather Tesla in or one or two Tesla stores in or something like that, galleries even. Yeah, it's but I didn't realize it had got to that scale actually and, it's just well, shocking. and here's the
2: funny. Here's the funny part, Zach. If you look at the states uh, where Tesla has sold directly, you mentioned. I think you mentioned the statistic before. Eighty percent of all the EVs have been sold through direct sales, i.e., I, through Tesla. Um, and in the states where where Tesla has um, has been able to have their stores, even though other manufacturers haven't, no dealer has gone out of business. No dealer has had to lay off person. In fact. You know, sales for those franchise dealers have only increased, and in fact, uh, ironically enough, uh, states that are closed, uh, the, the the franchise dealer sales haven't gone up nearly as much as the states that are open and allow this direct competition. I'm not saying the two are correlated, but I think it's an interesting statistic that across the board, franchise dealers have done well and their business has only increased, but the states that are open to direct sales seem to have done a little bit better than. The ones that are closed.
0: Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A C C. O U NTS at cleantechnica.com. Thanks.